So, always something you've believed um, or something you've come to later in life. Give us a bit of a background. <coughs> um, how did you come to, to the place that you are now um, with the doctrine of election? Uh, I was, uh, I became a Christian. Uh, I had a Catholic background. <clears throat> no Christian upbringing in that sense except for a Catholic background. Um, at 20 years old, I became, I was converted, as I was saying this morning, into a Baptist church. It was a liberal Baptist church, so it didn't really have any doctrine on anything. <clears throat> but within a few years, was involved in Pentecostal, charismatic kind of church for at least a dozen years. <clears throat> Excuse me. And from there, um, all the way through that time, I didn't, I didn't have an understanding, I didn't have a solid doctrine uh, of salvation, but I had an experience of it. So my experience was that whatever anybody else did, God came after me. I wasn't looking for him, I wasn't seeking. This was, if you'd have asked me in those years, I'd have said, oh yeah, he came after me, he saved me, he, <clears throat> he, he took, blew me off my feet, brought me into the kingdom of God. So when... A number of years later, I started. I read one book that just blew my mind, which was uh, Anthony Hakima um, on Saved by Grace. And I, as I read this book, I thought, I have experienced everything. I, I see this now doctrinally in a way I knew it experientially. Uh, and I was always at odds with, with others in the kind of Pentecostal church that I was in, charismatic church, who always kind of to put a lot of responsibility, you have to do this, you have to do that, and God will respond. And I just thought for my own life, it's not been like that. So when I started coming into the doctrines of grace and starting reading this, and they started devouring the reformers, uh, I realized that biblically, um, my experience lined up with what I believe is biblical. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, mate. Thanks so much for taking the time to share this tonight. It's a pleasure. It's all yours. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Um, has everybody managed to get uh, the notes? Yeah? If you've read them, you can go home now, because <laughs> that's all I'm going to do. <clears throat> Essentially, we're, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of election, and, uh, and it's a good place to start if we're talking about soteriology, the, <clears throat> the, the, the whole doctrine of salvation and how the Bible sees, that, sees our salvation. What is that? <laughs> is it? Does nobody, anybody bring a gun with them? Can okay, so let's kick it off by reading a few, a few texts, a few scriptures from Ephesians chapter 1, which is a great place to start. We could read plenty of others, but let's read this. Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 6. And Lord, give us grace tonight, I pray. Okay, Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, uh, after Paul's initial... Uh, introduction <clears throat> he says blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You can keep Ephesians open, because we'll pop back and forth to it a few times. <clears throat> and it's, this isn't going to be a preach. It's, you know, I'm going to be doing a lot of reading from here. So I've tried to pull out what guys have said down through the ages, so that it's not just me saying this. But that, that, that bit in Ephesians, and where it... You know, Straight away, you look at election. You look at the fact that God predestines people to salvation. He calls them. Before we're born, before the world was even founded, it says, God had a purpose and a plan for individual lives. And I've called it the mystery of election. So you're saying this. You know, there's mystery throughout salvation theology. There's mystery throughout the Bible. And, and you've got to get used to mystery. You've got to be able to be content with mystery because there's some things we just don't know. I say in here, I hate secrets. I hate secrets. 
I despise secrets. Um, you know, and, and you walk into a room, and it happens quite a lot, particularly, particularly to me for some reason. I walk into a room, and everybody's chatting, and it just stops. And you know full well they're talking about you. Um, and, uh, or, or just things where people start saying to you, and then they look at you, and they say, have you heard? And you go, no, and they say, oh, I won't say. Yeah, it doesn't that? Um, I don't like secrets. I want to know everything that's going on. I want to know what everybody's thinking, what everybody's saying. And yet God has secrets from us. He keeps secrets from us. Deuteronomy 29, 29, familiar verse, learn it. Um, because the whole point is that in that God has secrets. It's, it says that, uh, that the things revealed belong to us, but the secret things belong to the Lord. The premise being there are some things that God says, I'll let you understand and see this. And there are other things that God says, uh-uh. And election is shrouded in mystery. We can only get so far in understanding it, and then God goes, that's as far as you're going to go. I'm not going to let you go any further. Um, Robin Williams, in, <coughs> uh, in his theology, he says this, because all Christian doctrines relate to God, who is ultimately beyond our comprehension, there will inevitably be some element of mystery or transcendence that cannot be reduced to human understanding. Nevertheless, within these limits, the theological effort must be carried on. So even Robin Williams talks about, you know, we have to try, we we look, we try to understand, but we are going to hit limitations. Um, Calvin, so we're going to be, you're probably going to be hearing quite a bit about Calvin through this series because he was a, the great mind that take at the Reformation where Luther understood the doctrines of grace. Luke, Calvin was the great mind in Geneva that started understanding it, laying it out, teaching it, affecting John Knox and everybody else. Uh, he was the man. And he says this, I love this. The subject of predestination which is God determining things beforehand, which in itself is attended by considerable difficulty, is rendered very perplexed and hence perilous by human curiosity, which cannot be restrained from wandering into forbidden paths. Those secrets of his will which he has seen fit to manifest are revealed in his word, revealed in so far as he knew to be conducive to our interest and welfare, just like you would with a child to say... Um, I, can you do this please or I'll explain this to you and say and like we were talking about I've got a daughter that from that age the first word she could say was why 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 and you get to a point you say because I say so and and you know you're not able to understand you you cannot grasp some of the big whys here and there's a place where we keep saying why 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 and God goes I'll explain this I'll explain this I'll explain this that's it you're just going to have to trust me now And that's what we're going to find with some of these things. He says, Let it therefore be our first principle that to desire any other knowledge of predestination than that which is expounded by the word of God is no less infatuated than to walk where there is no path or to seek light in darkness. The best rule of sobriety is not only in learning to follow wherever God leads, but also when he makes an end of teaching from cease to cease from wishing to be wise. That was well said. So, so Calvin's saying, look, this is tough stuff. We're swimming in the deep end of the pool here. And you're not going to get all your questions answered. And you get to a point where to try and get all your questions answered, it, it start to become almost sinful and you know, accusative of God. Well, I want to know. I need to know. I need to have this answered. What about these people? What about this thing? You're not going to get them all answered. So it's a mystery, and the mystery is God chose you. And in Romans 9, we won't go there because I don't want to spend a lot of time with this. That's what happens. In Romans 9, as, as, as Paul is expounding some of these doctrines and explaining them, <clears throat> and particularly irresistible grace in Romans 9, they're saying, well, well who can resist his will then? And he goes, um, okay, that's enough now. That's enough now. You're not going to go any further here. The, the curtains are drawn. God says, that's it. I, I'm the boss, so to speak. And the, the clay doesn't say to the potter, why have you made me thus? It's just, this is the way it is. Not because God's saying, I'm not going to tell you. Because 
these, there's things in me that you can't understand and it won't serve you to understand. So you trust me in it. Some people deny this truth. <clears throat> Some people, many Christians say, well, we, we don't believe that God predestines. We don't believe in the doctrine of election. We don't believe that. We believe people are Christians entirely, completely, because they choose Christ. Christ died, the gospel goes out, they respond to the gospel, they're Christians. The Arminian theology would say, God does choose people, but it's the premise upon which he chooses them is because of his foreknowledge of their ability and desire to respond. We'll just talk about that in a minute. But a lot of people don't even have an Arminian theology. They just have a, 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 a non-biblical theology that says, no, I don't believe God chooses anyone. And say, well, you, you know, you've got to read your Bible because it's right through it. The question is, why, how, what does that look like? So we'll try and do this. So, so tonight, I love this Spurgeon quote. <clears throat> I just love Mr. Spurgeon. He says, we give our hand to every man that loves the Lord Jesus Christ, be he what, be he, what he may or who he may. The doctrine of election, like the great act of election itself, is intended to divide not between Israel and Israel, you know, no fighting in the church, but between Israel and the Egyptians. Not between saint and saint, but between saints and the children of the world. A man may be evidently, I love this, of God's chosen family, and yet, though elected, may not believe in the doctrine of election. I hold that there are many savingly called who do not believe in effectual calling, and that there are a great many who persevere to the end who do not believe the doctrine of final perseverance. We do hope the hearts of many are a great deal better than their heads. We do not set their... I love it. We do not set their fallacies down to any willful opposition to the truth as it is in Jesus but simply to an error in their judgments, which we pray God to correct. We hope that if they think us mistaken too, they will reciprocate the same Christian courtesy. And when we meet around the cross, we hope that we shall ever feel that we are one in Christ Jesus. This is not meant to divide us. And there's battles going on. And in fact, there's a, there's a whole new a plethora of books coming out at the moment trying to promote Arminian theology. And some of them are quite quite aggressive because of the new reformed Calvinistic movement. So some, a lot of new books are coming out at the moment. And, and that's fine. But this should not, never be something that divides us in fellowship. And it shouldn't be something that divides us from preaching the gospel. I can preach the gospel with anyone if they love the gospel. I'm not going to divide over that now. How I work that out and walk that out will be different. But this isn't meant to be, well, if you're not don't believe in this, then phew, I'm not even sure you're a Christian. That's nonsense. Um, but as Mr. Spurgeon says, I think it's biblical, and I think it's difficult to get away from it. Jim Packer says something. You can read that yourself. But he basically says exactly the same thing there. And, uh, and at the end he says, fascinating, this last bit here, he says, the irony of the situation, however, is that when we ask how the two sides pray it becomes apparent that those who profess to deny God's sovereignty, God making the choice, really believe in it just as strongly as those who affirm it. That, that is true. So those people who say, do you know what? It's entirely down to a human responsibility. People become Christians because they choose God. They don't become Christians because God chooses them. But those very same people, if they have a child, will say, Lord, save my child. Well, hang on a minute. That's inconsistent because... You're asking God to what? Break in on your child's life? Reveal himself to them? Save them? That, you know, so even my friends who are Arminians are really Calvinists when they pray. <clears throat> they have to be. Otherwise, stop asking God to break in on people's lives. Let them do the breaking into God. Um, <clears throat> I, I love it when you can get them there. And it's only in fun. It's only in fun. Um, <clears throat> but the point of election is just simply this. He chose us. He chose us. And throughout Scripture, this, the, the, the doctrine of election is not just into our salvation into Christ, but it's throughout the whole Bible. The, the, the sovereign choice of God, of individuals. And that's why we find <clears throat> Paul going through that 
when he's, particularly in Romans, and he's explaining, you know, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, I chose him, I didn't choose them, I chose this person. Throughout the Bible you find that. Um, and let's define it, let's define election as the scripture would say, and this is a big definition, but Jim Packer does it so well. He says, the verb elect means to select or choose out. The Bible doctrine of election is that before the creation, God selected out of the human race, foreseen as fallen, those whom he would redeem, bring to faith, justify and glorify, Romans 8, in and through Jesus Christ. This divine choice is an expression of free and sovereign grace. It's his choice sovereignly within himself. For it is unconstrained and unconditional, not merited by anything in those who are its subjects. That's part of the doctrine of election. God does not choose you or choose someone because of something in them. It's entirely and completely his free choice. God owes sinners no mercy of any kind, only condemnation. So it is a wonder and matter of endless praise that he should choose to save any of us. And doubly so when his choice involved the giving of his own son to suffer as sin bearer for the elect. <clears throat> All the way through we find this. Throughout the Old Testament, God choosing. And then uh, into the New Testament. And we're going through Acts, as I said this morning, at home. And not only is, is the doctrine of election taught throughout the epistles particularly the Pauline, Paul's epistles, Paul's letters, but it's taught throughout narrative as well. So in, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, um, and so you know, what must we do to be saved? Acts 2.38, repent, be baptized, and you, you receive the gift of the Spirit. This is for you, for your children, for all those who are far off, and all whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Acts chapter 13 <clears throat> You see exactly the same thing. Um, and as many as were ordained, as Paul's preaching, and as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. So it's in narrative as well as in, as in epistle. Um, <clears throat> but it leaves us with some dreadfully difficult questions. And the two main questions are this. Didn't I choose him? Because that may have been your experience. And the big question, why me and not others? Surely that's not fair. The challenge with the doctrine of election is it can, it shouldn't, but it can produce that sense of, what it, the opposite of what it's meant to produce, that sense of, hey, yeah, God chose me, didn't choose you. And then the fear and terror of, what if he hasn't chosen my daughter, my son, my mother, my father, my friend, my brother, my sister. What if he hasn't chosen them? If he ha doesn't choose them, it's clear biblically that unless he chooses, and you're going to see that, as many was, as were ordained to eternal life believe, if they're not ordained to eternal life, it seems that they can't believe. So what is that about? What is that about? So let's try and answer those questions. Finish my coffee. Because they're different. So let's answer the first one. Didn't I choose him? So you may, I don't know how you became a Christian, but for most of you, probably at some point, you, you came to a point where you said, not everybody, some people just say, I don't know where I hit that point, I just know I didn't believe, or I, and, I, and I do believe, or I can't remember not believing, but I know I'm born, and I know I'm alive, and I know I believe in Christ, but I can't point to a place that says, at that day, at that time. That's fine. <clears throat> but a lot would come to a point and say, you know, I made a decision to follow Jesus. I received him as my Lord and Savior. Somebody told me about him, preached the gospel, and in response to that gospel, I responded to that gospel. And that was my experience. I thought as well. Somebody told me about Jesus. Now, God broke in on me on that Wednesday, but somebody told me, and I just thought, okay, I, I'm starting to see this. Didn't I choose him? Yes, you did choose him. Those who, those who say it's, it's, there's no choice on your part are wrong. The Bible makes it clear. We preach the gospel. It's such a noisy place, Australia. 
I'm shouting over this stuff. We preach the gospel. And in preaching the gospel, we are calling people to respond to the gospel, to repent, Acts 2.38. What must we do? Repent and, and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You've got to do something. Yes, we did choose him, but only because he chose you. This is the doctrine of election. He enabled you to choose him. He <clears throat> made you alive. So the, the, the theological term for making someone alive is regeneration. He enabled you to repent, it's your choice, by making you alive. So he regenerates, something happens. And in calling you, he regenerates you. And then your response is, yes, Lord. Um, that's biblical. And people say, I, I totally disagree with that. I can't cope with that. So I say to them, well, let's talk about Lazarus, shall we? You'll get onto this later on. Um, Lazarus is dead. Yeah, yeah. We, can we agree on that? You know, let's pull somebody up, take a look at Lazarus, just like the magician. Okay, kick him. He's dead. Been dead for three days. Jesus comes and he goes, Lazarus, come forth. Okay, who chose? Who made Lazarus alive? Now, Lazarus had to get up and waddle out. However, it was Jesus' word that made him alive. And then he had to respond to the word, Lazarus, come forth and did. That's just a picture of our salvation. And so God chooses, uh, we, he chooses us in eternity past. And at a point in time, we choose him, but he enables us to choose him. Both are true, but one comes first. Those who would not accept the doctrine of election would say, we repent, and then God makes us alive. We choose him, and then God does something. I think the Bible teaches, we don't have time to go into it, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead as doornails. But God through the power of His Spirit and the Word of God in the Gospel, makes us alive in Christ. And in that, we respond to Him. Anthony Hakima, that was the book that I read. It's in here. He says this, The decisive factor in determining who is to be saved from sin is not the decisions of the human beings concerned, but the sovereign grace of God. Good name for a church. Though human decision does play a significant role in the process. We must therefore affirm both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, both God's sovereign grace and our active participation in the process of salvation. Otherwise, we go down the road where we just go, well, there's no point telling people about Jesus. That's where, what we call hyper-Calvinism. We won't bother telling anybody about Jesus. We won't bother preaching the gospel. God's going to make alive who he's going to make alive. He's chosen these people in eternity past. That cannot be changed. So suddenly they walk down the road and bing, they become a Christian. God says, no, no, no. They have to choose to respond to the gospel. But I will enable them to choose and we'll, you'll be going into effectual calling, I guess, uh, and irresistible grace. How God enables them to choose and what the power of that grace does. So I'm throwing everything into it tonight. We must therefore affirm both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, both God's sovereign grace and our active participation in the process of salvation. We can only do justice to the biblical teaching if we firmly hold on to both sides of this paradox. But since God is the creator and we are his creatures, God must have the priority. Hence, we must maintain that the ultimately decisive factor in the process of our salvation is the sovereign grace of God. <clears throat> And let me read Spurgeon, because this is him figuring it all out. Did I choose him? Did he choose me? Yeah, I chose him. But did he choose me? And this is Mr. Spurgeon working out. He says, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths of the doctrine of election in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan said, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I had grown all of a sudden from a babe into a man, that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge, though having found once for all, through having found once for all, the clue 
to the truth of God. I know, I know this feeling. It was like being born again again. It was just like suddenly the lights go on and it's, oh my gracious, it's all him. Um, <clears throat> then he explains what happened. One week night when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon for I did not believe it. Um, the thought struck me, ha, ha, his mind's wandering, how did you become a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, that he was the author of my faith, and so the doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day, and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. How sweet is that? He just goes, oh my gracious. It wasn't me, was it? It was him. And then you open your Bible, ordained to eternal life. That's what he did. He called me, he elected me, before the foundation of the earth, God said, Pete Greasy, I'm going to save you. And changed things and moved things and organized things, made me alive and enabled me and caused me to want to respond to him. Because I didn't want to respond to him. None of us do. Um, <clears throat> and Phil Riken's talking about this uh, uh, barnhouse used this thing. And it's used in so many different ways, this. But it's a great picture. He says... Uh, the, the famous American Bible teacher Donald Gray Barnhouse often used an illustration to help people make sense of election. He asked them to imagine a cross like the one on which Jesus died, only so large that it had a door in it. Over the door were these words from Revelation, whosoever will may come, and that's what we preach in the gospel. These words represent the free and universal offer of the gospel. By God's grace, the message of salvation is for everyone, and it is. Every man, woman and child who will come to the cross is invited to believe in Jesus Christ and enter eternal life. On the other side of the door, you go through the door, the door closes, a happy surprise awaits the one who believes and enters. For from the inside, anyone glancing back can see the words from Ephesians written above the door, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Election is best understood in hindsight. For it is only after coming to Christ, or only after coming to Christ, that one can know whether one has been chosen in Christ. Those who make a decision for Christ find that God made a decision for them in eternity past. <clears throat> one of the challenges of raising children, because uh, like this is a family secret. Election is the family secret. One of the challenges in raising kids, and, and we had it, and we've big time with, with one of ours, uh, been an ongoing challenge when she was a child, was that, <clears throat> what if God hasn't chosen me? Now, I never thought, what if God hasn't chosen me, because I chose him and I was saved, and then I looked back and I saw on the back of the door that he chose me. But she's already seen the back of the door because we've been telling her about it before she's gone through the door. It's not helpful. It should be the family secret. You may be sitting here tonight and you haven't, you haven't chosen Christ. You haven't received him as your Lord and Savior, and you sit listening to me and thinking, well, maybe he hasn't chosen me. I would presume that he has because you're sitting here. So, okay, the fact that you're sitting here, the fact that you're listening to this, would give me every confidence to say to you, I believe he has chosen to you. Now respond to him and receive him as your Lord and Savior. End of story. And you'll find that what I thought was true is true. There we go. <clears throat> There's so much to read here and so much to say, and I don't want to do it. But there you go. So <clears throat> I don't want to just bore you with so much stuff. So you've got this sweet little, you know, this is a, an old hymn. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It wasn't I that found, O oh, Savior, true. No, I was found by thee. And I think as we grow in the knowledge of the Scripture, as we see that, we, it should make us go, Wow. Wow. And there is effect of this. It changes us, and we'll look at that in a minute, what it does. But let's get the, to the big question, the big, juicy, tough one. That, that is 
That is a very painful question because we love people who aren't Christians. We know people and we look at them and we go, Lord, I believe that you choose. I believe that you ordain to eternal life. I see it in the Bible. I believe that you elect people. <clears throat> but and what about this person? What about this group of people? What about these who have never heard? What about all of that? How can this be right? What kind of a God can go you and not you? Well, let's look at it. Is it fair? Well, firstly, the Bible never describes God as fair, ever. You're never going to see a text <clears throat> where God says, well, all right, I'll be fair. In fact, right through the Bible we find he isn't trying to be fair. He is just and he is loving, but he's more concerned with being just and loving, those are his attributes, than being fair. Um, Mark Webb says this just great. <clears throat> he says, after giving a brief survey, this is, this is one of the sweetest quotes in here. After giving a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, good name for a church, I ask for questions from the class. Keep, I'll keep saying that whenever I read it. Okay. One lady in particular, one lady in particular was quite troubled. She said, this is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men and women who would be saved, receiving only the elect. I answered her in this vein, you misunderstand the situation. You're visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get to the door and God is saying to various ones, yes, you can come, but not you. And you, but not you, etc. The situation is hardly this. Rather... God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men, that's Romans 1, without exception, are running in the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. And that is the very nature. No one seeks God, Paul says. Not even one. No one in our nature says, I, I choose God. I want to be. No, no, we may choose our own gods, our own idols, but we don't choose him. We're all running away. So God, in election, graciously reaches out and stops this one, and that one, and this one over here, and that one over there, and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. Election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there, but it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. Were it not for election... Heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams. That kind of response, grounded as I believe that it is in scriptural truth, does put a different complexion on things, doesn't it? If you perish in hell, blame yourself. It is entirely your fault. But if you do make it to heaven, credit God, for that is entirely his work. To him alone belong all praise and glory, for salvation is all of grace from start to finish. Whew. that's the picture. This is the invitation. The gospel invitation is to all. Whosoever will, let him come and drink freely of the water of life. Come to Christ. Receive him. The gospel invitation is open to all. But the reality is, none of us go, yes. We don't want God. Keller would say, we don't want heaven. He would say, Hell is populated by people who want to be there. That's very difficult to understand. And I'm not so sure I agree with some of his thinking on that. Nonetheless, nonetheless, the reality is we're not after God. And God's not saying, not you, you, not you, not you. But there is a sense in which God is saying to those who are running in the opposite direction, hang on there a minute, hang on there. And the question is, why does he go to me, hang on there, and not to somebody else? don't know. Curtains closed. I do know this. It's not because of something in me. I know that. I know there's not something good in me. I know it's not that God looked down through eternity future and looked at me and goes, oh, you know, Greasy will respond. Let's choose him. <coughs> Because that means I essentially am the author of my salvation. It starts with me and God is responding to something he sees in me. No, no, no. 
It's not anything about me. It's something to do with God's sovereign, free choice. If you you can't find anything, the only thing you could, could possibly find is in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, Consider your calling, brethren, you bunch of half-wit losers. <laughs> you know, yeah, transliteration there. <clears throat> you, you, you know, God took you messed up freaks in order to shame the wise and to show that it's purely all of grace, essentially. Um, there's no reason, but if you want a reason, that's the best one you're going to get. But God closes it. It's according, it says here in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will for the praise of His glorious grace. And we can't see any further. Uh, In Deuteronomy 7, you find God choosing Israel to be His people. And in it, God says exactly the same thing. Oh, by the way, I chose you? Yeah, but you're, you're, you're... You're a bunch of rubbish. You're just rubbish. I chose you. You're one of the smallest people. There's nothing about you. I didn't choose you because you were great. I chose you. In fact, you were the opposite. But I chose you because I chose to choose you. That's the best you get. Why did God choose me? Because he chose to choose me. Why? I don't know. And the Bible's not going to let me go there. There's the mystery in election. People say, I don't like the fact that God chooses people. Well, Jesus chose 12 disciples. What about everybody else? It's not fair. But he he did. God chooses and we don't understand. It wasn't something in, in us that's clear. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And, and you'll get into this a bit later on as you go into these things. So particularly Paul's arguments in Romans. <clears throat> and he goes to Romans 9 and he goes on to it and explaining this. And earlier on he, he starts to open this whole thing up. through into 11 and he's explaining and tearing it apart and just saying to them look 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 let's look through history let's look through the old testament let's look through our scriptures and understand god's sovereign choice that's how he does it and if we were to do this properly we'd do a full exposition of romans in that but we're not going to so the arminian issue is on what basis did god choose you his knowledge of your positive response or his sovereign will I believe the Bible teaches fundamentally it's his sovereign will. It, it's, if it's me, if it's me, and, and think of it this way, if it's me who chooses God, the pride, oh, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, it, it, it's just like, didn't I do well? Didn't I do well? You're an idiot and I'm brilliant because I chose Jesus and you haven't. So, Go to hell. And I'm going to go to heaven because I'm smarter than you are. God says, uh, 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 uh. I'm not going to let you do that. So there's effect of this truth, and then we'll finish on this. What is the effect? Well, it brings humility. It should bring humility. You shouldn't, if you get this, you can't be proud because you recognize there is nothing in you that caused God to choose you. You weren't born, folks. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you in him according to the purpose of his will. So what have you got to boast about? Zip, nothing. Ephesians 2 says it here in verse 8 and 9. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, the faith, even this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. You did nothing. Except respond, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. It's all about him. And that should cause us to go, I'm amazed by grace. Uh Uh-uh. You know, it should cause us to sit down, befuddled, shaking our heads, saying, why? And knowing there's no answer to the why, but saying, I don't know why, but thank you. It brings humility. It should do. It should enable us to be 
when we preach the gospel or in the church talk to people, making it clear we ain't no better than anyone. We're not the smart ones who got this right. We're the ones that God, in his incredible mercy, said, you, you. Uh, Mark Webb again, God intentionally designed salvation so that no man can boast of it. He didn't merely arrange it so that boasting will be discouraged or kept to a minimum. He planned it so that boasting will be absolutely excluded. Election does precisely that. Ah, I love it. And Mr. Spurgeon, just great again. I believe the doctrine of election, Spurgeon says, because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me. Ah, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with such special love. Isn't that wonderful? I don't get this. But it breaks me and it causes me to not be arrogant but be amazed. Um, secondly, assurance. <clears throat> you're going to get to this when you do the perseverance of the saints if you're going to do that. In love... He predestined you. The motive was love. Here's the good thing. I can't preach perseverance of the saints. It's not fair. It's not what I'm here to do. But my assurance of the future is based on election. God called me before I was born. Before, as he's saying about Esau and Jacob, I had done anything right or wrong. He elected me. He called me at a moment in time. He made me alive and caused me to want to choose him. My life has changed. I'm irresistibly drawn. I'm effectually called. Election has come into being. And because he's done that, what can I do to undo that? It was so entirely outside of me, I realized my whole salvation is in him. So, <clears throat> he, has, he who began the good work will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He began the good work. It's not like, well, I elected you, I called you, I saved you, I changed you, but pff, you've blown it. No, no, no. My confidence is not that I'm going to make it because I'm going to try. Now, I am going to try. But my confidence is I'm going to make it because he elected me. He saved me before the foundation of the earth. It was a setup and it was planned. How wonderful. So, nothing. So, you know, those who he called, he justified, those who justified, he glorified, it goes on there. There's a whole link together in Romans 8. Nothing can separate us. Nothing, 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 starting an election, can separate us from the love of God. Not even you. So he just, nothing can. Angels can this, can that, can they, uh, what, about, what about life? You know, what have we missed out? Life. <clears throat> can my life separate me? No. But I believe that if someone is genuinely saved, my life will reflect that. And I don't mean to create, this is not passive Christianity, but Paul was accused of preaching the gospel of grace so undiluted way that people were saying, well, that means I can just do anything and live however I want because God saved me, God's elected me, it's all entirely outside of me, he's going to keep me strong through to the end, so what difference does it make? And he says, I'm not saying that. But you're right to start thinking that way because when you start getting grace and the gospel properly, you do start thinking, you mean is it so much just God? And then you realize, but when you get it, you're so affected by it, you go... I'm so blown away by what you've done for me in sending your son. I want to live for you now. But it's motivated by a knowledge of what's already taken place in justification that enables us to be sanctified. Assurance is there. Gratitude. So we live for the praise of his glorious grace, that which we received that isn't deserved. Jim Packer again, to know that from eternity, <clears throat> my maker, foreseeing my sin, for love me and resolve to save me, though it would be at the cost of Calvary. Hang on a minute. Just think about that. God chose you before you were born and yet knew 
every moment of every day of your life. He knew the worst day, the very worst day, the worst thing you could ever do, the worst person you became. He knew that day and saved you. That gives me such a sense of, you knew this, Lord. You knew how I'd be here. You knew how I'd respond in that situation. You knew what was going on in my heart and my mind there. And yet, you saved me. This is sweet. Though it would be at the cost of Calvary, to know that the Divine Son was appointed from eternity to be my Savior, and that in love He became man for me and died for me and now lives to intercede for me, and will one day come in person to take me home, to know that the Lord who loved me and gave Himself for me, and who came and preached peace to me through His messengers, has by His Spirit raised me from spiritual death to life-giving union and communion with himself and has promised to hold me fast and never let me go. This is knowledge that brings overwhelming gratitude and joy. It really should. <clears throat> one, of the, one of the things we've talked about and is that churches that seem to understand this doctrine... Uh, they say, or hold to it, maybe. They hold to the doctrine of election. But it's like, well, let's gather together and, and worship and sing. And, and it's like, yeah, we'll sing this song. You just think, if you really get this, you, you should be finding it hard to restrain yourself in your gratitude and in your joy. If you really get it, and you stand there, and you go, before the throne of God above, have a strong and perfect plea, Great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the grace of oh, but I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. If, it, if you get this, you know, you just go, oh my gracious. Why? Amazing grace. And it gives us finally faith for mission and evangelism. This doesn't stop us preaching the gospel. Back to the sticky bomb. The glorious good thing is, I don't know who God has ordained for eternal life, so I'm going to stick a sticky bomb on everybody. And here's my hope. As I've I've got older, this is what I've come to believe more and more. God works in incredible, miraculous, wonderful ways. And I'm with a lot of people when they die. Um, As part of my life, as part of my job. Christians and non-Christians. But I'm sticking sticky bombs on people. I'm letting them know the gospel. I don't even know what's happening right through to that moment of death. But I'm going to use the opportunity to take that and say, here's the gospel. And I don't know what God can do, but here's my confidence. God regenerates. God makes alive. And he uses the gospel to do it. Sometimes we want them to confess, receive Jesus, I receive Jesus, crying, I'm crying, hand in the air, yeah, hand in the air, kneel down in front of you. Oh, great, they're in. Well, they may not be. It may just be an emotional response. Or you could save the gospel and someone share it and without even realizing it, they just go, I believe that. I believe that. <clears throat> and I have seen people right at the end of their life sometimes. And so I, I have a confidence. And I hear something else just to throw out as well concerning election. You say, I don't know if this person's saved. Uh, what if God's not called them? So I have a daughter who's not a Christian. So my son's Christian and my youngest daughter, but my middle daughter's not a Christian. <clears throat> and she's wonderful and we love it a bit. And, but she says, I, I, you know, I'm not convinced of the existence of God. She's got a bit of a funny head. Um, and, and we talked about that since she was like two and a half years old, the existence and attributes of God. She's a bit of a freak. But, and I, but I love her to death. And, um, and we talked all this through. And I, I don't sit there thinking, what if God's not called her? What if God's not elected her? What if God's not? I think, you know, um, I'm talking to her. I, 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 look, I don't just look at the, the, what happens in the end. What does she say? I look at the means. If I'm talking to her, if God's placed her in my family, I see that as God in eternity past, choosing to put her in this family so she could hear the gospel. If I'm praying for her, I see that prayer as something initiated by God in order to pray, which I believe he wants to answer. 
if I'm sharing the gospel with her, and this girl is covered in sticky bombs. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. When she, when she blows, it'll be a nuclear explosion. There's no question. <clears throat> it'll be a nuclear explosion. But, you know, I'm a complete rest and peace. And I, I don't sit and think, oh, what if she's not called? I sit and say, all these to me are just more and more evidences of God's electing calling on a life. And I'm just waiting for that to happen. As and when, it may be in my lifetime, it may not. I could die at peace knowing she'll be there. Why? Because I have a guarantee. I don't need a guarantee. I've got Christ, I've got the Word of God, and I see the evidences of grace in her life all the way through. Prevenient grace, we call it, prior to becoming saved, that causes me. So don't lose heart. Don't say, I'm not sure about this person. Pray for people and anticipate, do you know what? That prayer, I believe, was ordained by God because maybe God wants to answer that prayer. Share the gospel with them. Continue to trust God. And I believe God will save many, many, many. So it should give us faith for mission. It should allow us to go and, you know, I could be in a room full of people that you just think these people are just not interested. But you don't know. You don't know who God's saying, okay, <clears throat> I am sitting here with the, with the blue touch paper. You just put the gospel on them and I'm going to light it by my Holy Spirit because I've called them from eternity past. And then you'll get into the other stuff. Finish with a little hymn. Sweet hymn. It says, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee. That's, that's the truth. But thou hast chosen me. Thou from the sin that stained me, washed me and set me free, and to this end ordain me that I should live for thee. To a sovereign grace, good name for a church, that called me and taught my opening mind. The world had else enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart owns none above thee, for thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. And called me, and elected me, and at the right time, at the right moment, made me alive in Christ. It's, it's a glorious and wonderful and life-changing truth. <clears throat> and it's not something that should cause us to say, I cannot accept a God that chooses some and not others. It should cause us to go, I thank God, and I can accept a God who shouldn't choose anybody but chose me and chooses others and gives us the gospel to give an invitation out to all and knowing that even though no one of themselves would respond to that gospel, God will enable them and make them alive so that they will respond to that gospel. What amazing grace. And so if you're concerned for anyone, then I say pray for them. Share the gospel with them. Let that give you confidence that God is involved in their life through you. Amen?